Call 911, quick! <laughs> episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of it's not aliens. It's worse. It's us. And monthly co-host Kat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. And now, without any further ado, our guests for today are Dr. Richard Allen Miller and Jared Murphy. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, up, finally your voice, your volume went back up to normal again. Wait, wait out here and then. <laughs> yeah, good morning. So, um, so Richard, what have you been up to? What are you working on? I'm uh, got a lot of projects. It's just interesting all the roadblocks I'm encountering now. Um, the most important for me has nothing to do with money. It uh, is a new field theory that I'm writing with two Russians, and I've probably spoken about it earlier, basically, uh, it will supersede my holographic universe by 47 years. Um, I'm he the, Max Rempel, a Russian, made a major breakthrough on what's called the proton cloud, where he proved that the um, DNA is a biohologram. It's a resonant cavity oscillator dialoguing with subtle bodies outside the physical body. And his, um, it's like a little transmitter, <laughs> if you will, talking to something outside itself. And what we don't know is what it is it's doing. And so the holographic universe was something I did in 1972. And Max is quoting from a second paper that I presented in 1973 that was then classified top secret for 20, 20, 20 years. I, it was released, I think it was in 92, 1992, and two Russians quoted from that, Garyev, Garyayev and Popov, and were immediately nominated for a Nobel Prize. They didn't get the nod, so I didn't get to go, but Max studied under Garyayev and Popov. And now I'm finding other Russians, like Irene uh, Cesar, that uh, are also quoting from my work from 1973 on new work on the proton cloud. The cloud is the proton cloud is the space between when a proton is a particle and when it becomes a wave, and that is where the multiverse lies. The concept of a multiverse. The math that I'm using will be a form of virtual knot theory off of Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman's work on knot theory 
uh, is interesting. I'm using a variation on his mathematics. Uh, basically, as a metaphor, I would say to you, how many decisions have you made just today? And, you know, doing this over that. And each one of those different decisions creates a universe of possibilities of who you become. And because time isn't real, what would that make your daughter and your great-grandfather? And that is you having made different decisions that led you to be your daughter or your great-grandfather. And that's where the multiverse lies and all the variations of what made you God's favorite choice. Is that concept, are you getting the metaphor here, kind of? Yeah. Okay. So, it's like you take 10 strings in string theory and the interconnecting 11th one, and you start tying knots and the possibilities of universes is staggering. And consciousness, as we understand it, isn't even real. It's basically a shared dream that you and I are doing right now and talking to each other. Now, you and I in the multiverse are variations of having made different decisions throughout our so-called conscious life and led to you being you and me being me as a metaphor. It isn't the way things are. It's conceptually the way physics will allow you to go there. Let me say this. I've said this before that physics is limited. It's like space. Space isn't real any more than time. We, I watched astrology become astronomy and then will lead to cosmobiology. And where that relates to this biohologram concept is that when a woman is born, a phase angle is set in her DNA on when she ovulates with phases of the moon. And when the moon and the sun and earth are in a specific geometric alignment, she ovulates as a metaphor. Now, if she moves to a different part of the earth, that phase angle changes and her ovulation cycle changes, which means we now have a birth control form for phases of geometry in what we call space with objects. And the study I did back in 1974 was with the Department of Interior out of Menlo Park. It turns out what I did is a 360 computer to vet through history that when the planet Uranus and the sun and the earth are in a specific geometric alignment, there is a three sigma error coefficient or a 99.9975% probability of a major Carrington-like event. And that was what the Parker dive was all about last last winter was that they wanted to vet the variations on solar minimums which act as a trigger for the event. When Uranus and Earth and Sun are in a geometric alignment, that alignment with orbs, you know, variations of it, 
can last for almost half a year. So when is the trigger or set point? And that's during a solar minimum. And there are different kinds of solar minimums, like phases of the moon, like being, you know, full moon, and everything kicks off in astrology. Well, in cosmobiology, Uranus is a higher octave of Earth. And so this is our limited understanding of what space is, like time being a duration of consciousness. You have a question? Yeah, Richard, let's start. Let's. There's one that I wanted to go back to because I'm sure people have a few. There's a three, but let's start with this one. Do you think that that collective dream is shared, like you said, in conversation, we're, we're changing it? Does that mean that depending on just like the power of eight or any time collectively people connect, is that dream being manipulated? No. Um, yes and no. I, at this juncture, I could seriously make an argument that we're in a Petri dish. Because yeah. when you say to me, well, Epoch, trial by fire, Tapasia, and quote, we've been here before with such things as Ramana. It seems like man gets up to a certain level of awareness and development, and he's slapped back down to zero again, has to start all over. Do you, well, so it, the Petri dish or not, so if we're Might be a matrix, might be, you know, a type like a matrix, yeah. No, right, Here. but if we're collectively dreaming together, does the dream at all or the experiment of the Petri dish change if a million people dream the same thing or agree on something? Well, like yeah, that's why you have resonance. That's what causes the resonance, that higher octave of dialoguing, like your gut is an enteric nervous system, is a hierarchy of resonant cavity oscillators, starting with viruses and dialoguing with bacteria and on up into small entities like worms. And Okay. Okay, that's a concept, conceptually. Because I can say to you that all physics starts with assumed truths. And the simplest one you can see, once you get it in your mind's eye, you'll understand the shortest distance between two points is the Earth's round. But if space is curved because of gravity or whatever, I can prove that the Earth's flat. And which one is it? And the correct answer is yes, because your mind is a tool so that you have these doors available if it's flat or those doors available if it's round. And yeah. you are only limited by your ability to imagine in the mind's eye, which was chapter eight in the holographic universe. So uh, this is the more com. This is the second question. This one's a little more complex for everyone listening, which is uh. when, when you started asking or when you started stating about the resonance and the frequencies, there's this, the proton cloud. We were talking about proton. We were talking about there seems to be an external uh, connection to cellular systems. Well, conceptually, when right. it's a wave, you know, the double slit experiment, when it's a particle and when it's a wave, which one is it? And if it's this, this, these universes are available, and when it becomes that, then those universes and all the thing between. And that's why, biblically, they've always stated what man, made man God's favored was his ability for choice, to choose one universe over another. And the wonderful part is we have access to all of it. 
which means that anything you could conceive of as God is not only what you're capable personally of achieving right now today, but it's less than halfway to what we really got it. You have no ability to even comprehend. That's why biblically they'll say you can experience God, but you can't know him. It's not possible. You're not capable of it. You're limited. Right. Well, the reason I was bringing it up is not from a theoretical standpoint on the biology, but isn't it true then maybe based on, you know, the constant statements of we're 10 or 15% conscious. And you, like you said, we seem to reach epochs of uh, advancement. Certain level of awareness, and then we're back down to zero. So is it possible that in that higher state of awareness that we were conscious enough to program our cellular systems to really interact with that extra? Yeah, I, you know, it's like I feel I'm like David Copperfield in the book. <laughs> David. Well, I've got an empty bowl. I'm hungry, and I'm saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm still hungry. I would like something more than the physical plane, please. And I... You know, there's something more going on here than just the physical world. And which, which, what I'm wondering, though, is how closely do you think our actual biological, physical systems and, and the natural systems are actually part of not an, just an artificial programming, maybe, but how intentional in a more conscious... Well, okay, the argument I could give here is that today, because of the COVID virus, we have two kinds of human beings. We have a human and we have a GMO. And basically, what they're doing to the GMO is dumbing down our children uh, with the educational process, kind of like Cro-Magnon versus Neanderthal. And uh, if you, as a metaphor, and it's this metaphor that I can sense, I can't know, I can sense there's something more going on here. As to what it is, I can only speculate. I, you know, I don't know. I'm in the same petri dish you are. I'm right. just hungry here for something real, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I know that the physical plane isn't real. There are lucid dream states that have more content to reality in our studies than consciousness does. So what do you think is going on? I don't know. So, uh, do you think it's a new world order? No. I think that that's managed by greed. And if I were an alien, a vamp being, I could manipulate these individuals to rule because of greed. You know, Gecko in the movie Wall Street, greed is good. You know, I can tell you it isn't about the physical plane. There's something more going on here, and I can't put my finger on it as a physicist because it's like Simon says, you can go halfway to the door. You get close, that protocol, but you don't get there, no cigar, because that protocol doesn't allow you to get to the door. It lets you get close to it, but by definition, you know, you can't conceptualize. There are four mammals on this planet that have higher, bigger brain cases. And Orca, who has a cerebral cortex literally twice the size of man, that mammal is firing 60% of it, and that biological entity has access to nine-tenths of the biosphere, where man has only access to one-tenth. 
from that perspective, who's superior? Perfect. Right. So I want, I want to back up a second. I have a question about, like, when you were talking about Uranus and the planets' alignments and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, well, and it's it has to do with geometry. Right? Well, that's what I was going with. It's like with the sacred geometry and, like, like to me, sacred geometry is, is, is pretty much related to cymatics also. The shapes that are I created by, that by sound. I was cymatics in 1974. And, and I wonder I, how... I did that when I moved the Manager Foundation from Topeka to the University of Washington and started doing video feedback systems. And what I discovered is that sound and light, certain bandwidths, okay, not audio, but, you know, video, caused biological changes in the body, and they called that in 1974 cymatics. In 79, I then did a second book called Electromagic, where I was able to alter altered states of consciousness using electric currents on the forehead rather than taking drugs. Drugs, and that's what my new field theory is about, is how these neurotransmitters in the brain are like bacteria in the gut, where the brain can be likened as a second gut dialoguing with subtle bodies outside the physical. And the physical bodies that are dialoguing with would be like chi and things that we call structured water in microtubules outside the physical body that leave the body at the moment of death. You know, five gram weight loss in the body, is, and it's not urine, what is that? It goes back to the multiverse. Well, I don't know. I could suggest it might be structured water in microtubules, and five grams of structured water is enough memory for 100,000 lifetimes as a metaphor. Hmm. So, so that, the, the structured water and, and uh, the, the microtubules, would that be possibly like what we call like chi today? Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. That's one of just a multitude of subtle bodies outside the physical. And that's the multiverse I'm talking about, where you have access to it. I watched a woman rip a car door off to save her daughter in a flaming automobile. She literally ripped the door off. Now, from a physics point of view, that's impossible. Adrenaline neurotransmitter did not make the muscle in her body and bone stronger than steel. So how did that work? I have no idea who's calling me now. I'm going to look. Scam, bam, risk. I'm going to give you the phone number. I want everybody to call us. 541-875-5412. And I want all of you to call that number and hassle them back because this is not right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll put difficult. that number in the notes of this episode. <laughs> well, no. I mean, this is typical of what I'm up against right now. When I'm trying to explain something. I think this is the first time I've had a car warranty. <laughs> a car what? <laughs> the car warranty call on my episode. Don't turn off. You know something? And it says spam risk. And it's still doing it. I saw a car bumper a couple days ago, Richard. <laughs> and I don't know, I thought it was pretty funny. 
and they referenced the uh, it said what if um, Stacy's mom was Jesse's girl and her phone number was eight six seven five three zero nine on a car. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, I am. I'm going to. And this is typical of what happens to me almost every minute where I've been moved to here now in this lower middle class thing, and I'm not able to write. And the latest book I'm writing, oh, you're going to love this one, is a new take on the tarot cards. I am literally the physicist that did not blow himself up. It's going to be titled The Magical and Ritual Use of Metaphor, Archetypal Gods in Daily Living. Its premise is, instead of a thinking, intuitive, and a blah, 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 there are 22 stories in the big city. And what you try to do, archetypal, and what you try to do is identify which storyboards are going on because each one has an ending. For example, Persephone having to go back to Hades once a year would be metaphorically somebody taking drugs once a year because they're depressed. And each storyboard has its ending, and if you don't like the ending on it, like Eros and Psyche at the Well of Souls, then you change the movie. And you do that with a 12-volume set I wrote early on called Pathworking on the Kabbalah. And you go in and you methodically change the storyboard. You're either got one storyboard going on, which means you're possessed, or more than one, which means you're complex. You and I probably have seven or eight primary storyboards going on with secondary ones going on as well. Uh, you know, with Hera and Aphrodite and all the different legends that the Greek used. That was their technology was archetype, trying to say there are 22 different ways in the big city and you have your complex. You have several different storyboards going on at one time. And if you don't like what's going on, and that again goes back to the multiverse. In other words, it's not about the card and the symbolism and the color like Crowley and Ryder Deck and some of the others. It's about identifying the metaphor of what's going on inside you. And once you've identified that, now you can do pathworking or changing the movie. And that is going to be the way I do tarot. So the emphasis is not on the card. It's on the story. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's one of the things, like, I, one of the ways that I learned tarot is to sort of put myself in the card and, you know, look at it like as, as a three-dimensional world and, and try to experience, have different experiences actually inside that archetype. Yeah, well, okay, the fool, zero, card zero, mm -hmm. you know, the... A fool is uh, the individual that's stepping out over something. In the card, they never show you what it's stepping out. Could be the abyss, stepping out over nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, that will be Uranus, and that's the god Uranus in Greek. And uh, I hope that then this legitimizes magic. Which, by the way, if Farmer saw what you and I were doing right now, 100 years ago, 
in terms of his belief systems, what would he call what you and I are doing right now? Magic. Exactly. It is a type of higher form of technology that we don't even comprehend how it works. And it's arbitrary. And that's what epochs mean. And quote, we've been here before. Because if time isn't real, St. Augustine called that a duration of consciousness. It is a way of storing memory. I studied with James Hillman, which is imaginal psychology, and I'm going to try to integrate that in with my physics. Malcolm, Mal, with my Malcolm in the middle. <laughs> and everybody, everybody is different because there are not eight neurotransmitters like Leary's neurologic circuits. There are hundreds of thousands of them like bacteria in your gut. And each of us is different and have different foods that we eat, giving us a different spread of neurotransmitters in the brain. And what we're doing when we take drugs, it isn't the drug that's like mushroom that's opening and allowing you to have placebo going from 10% up to 60. It's the drug, like mushrooms, is actually, in fact, a toxin. It has a chemistry that's very similar to, but different than the neurotransmitter. And the one Strassman and others have studied dimethyltryptamine, which during my studies when I was doing BZ gas and ketamine, was basically called telepathine. And telepathing, your third eye, is the part where when you smoke it in a pipe, it's 5-alpha. But when you release the neurotransmitter, it's N, comma, N, hyphen, dimethyltryptamine. And it's that bacteria or neurotransmitter that is now dialoguing with a subtle body in the multiverse of something you are not because of who you are at this moment, having made the decisions to be here, what you do is use the mind as a tool to change the movie. I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't have believed it. Well, can you could you do that then and replicate it without the smoking? Can you do it with? Yeah, the that's what I did with Yogatronics. Uh, I did, first did it with electric currents. That's electromagic. And then in 1983, the last work I did with the military was called Yogatronics, where I set up resonant cavity oscillators with sacred geometry and create my own wormhole. And you can validate this by Googling the Mars Project, those are all capped, the Mars Project, comma, Warnicke's Correction. That's a part of the brain near the reticular activating center that accounts for and regulates confabulation in the brain. Now, I'm, I created my own wormhole in 1983 and went to Mars with a whole bunch of people and showed them we did a project there. And did you know that Mars actually, physically, for a smaller planet, literally has more water than Earth does? Wouldn't doubt it. It's interesting. Hmm. And what do you think the asteroid belt was? Another planet that got wiped out? It was that one time where they started the project Human Beings to mine, as a metaphor, mine gold for their Dyson Sphere. And Nibiru 
I remember I was at JPL a couple years back, and one of the scientists was looking at Nibiru, and he said, the IR signature is wrong for Nibiru. And that's when I said, yeah, it's got a Dyson sphere around it, and it's our future coming to meet the present. It's all in metaphor. Hmm. I had to put that down. That's a that's actually an interesting idea. Very interesting. Uh, for the uh, all concepts of being able to use your mind as a tool and magic with a K. You know, you got your laser man. You know, your sleight of hand. You know, with Harry in your pocket. Yeah, you, know, you know. Then you know, hand signs and you know, magic. But you also have sleight of mind, where you use your mind as a tool to look at the Earth as flat, and now you have access to those universes, or I'm going to look at it as round and access these, or I'm going to have access to all of it, because it's my divine right. This the book that you're writing on the tarot. Did this from an esoteric or from the dialogues of the characters in that perspective change when you look at the non magical technical side of it? It's, I don't know yet. I'm 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 like you. I'm exploring the possibilities, and as I do, they keep getting more and more staggering. Like the holographic when I conceptualized. The holographic universe 47 years ago, I did not have the relationship to it I do today. Right. Do you think that there's anything to like an Eastern take on tarot? Is there a corresponding Asiatic version of it? That well, the voice of the silence and the Shabbat, the sound current, their so-called zero point energy is mycorrhizae in the soil and the mycelium is how the mother tree or oldest plant in the forest communicates with the younger ones using mushroom. And that's a woman up at the University of British Columbia in forestry talking about that now. It's, uh, it's conceptually what Terence McKenna and others called zero point energy. It's more, something more is going on here. And you hear it in the right ear. It's like, the background noise, you can't hear sounds beyond 18,000 cycle, but I can hear the insect in the, in the woodwork because it's a high frequency thing that then sounds like a sound. Sounds like someone's playing a music somewhere down the street. And in fact, it isn't. It's your brain making sense or trying to make sense on something it can't quite hear but knows is available. And that has been written about extensively in the appendishads and the so-called voice of the silence or the lost chord. So I am interested in integrating Eastern and Western thought, like the Tai Chi, you know, when you're moving like this kind of movement, have you noticed that that's the yin within the yang. I'm blocking. Someone's trying to hit my crotch. I'm blocking. That's the yin-yang symbol, that movement. There's um, 
something more going on here. And I can't quite articulate it as a scientist or physicist. I have to try to retain those rules of engagement so that you respect my opinion. But candidly, the thing that makes it real is not my explanation. It's your ability to see it for yourself in your mind's eye. And that is where a distinction is made between learning something and studying it. When you study something, what you're doing is taking something I have and integrating it into what you have and making it yours. And that is what Tai Chi is to martial arts or Hung Gao, which I do, dragon form. But I, I actually, I actually have a couple of tarot decks that do incorporate the Eastern and Western um, mythologies. This is actually one of them right here. It's sort of a rare deck, but it, it, it actually <laughs> yeah, incorporates cool. regular tarot, Eastern, with Mayan. Mayan technology. Yeah. So, so it's all, all, and, all and, in this uh, one know, deck. It's really a powerful deck. History. Yeah, they have an interesting history. I, for me, I've gone back into the Greek because I studied with James Hillman, and I'm using imaginal psychology, which is Jungian psychology three generations later. It's third generation imaginal psychology, uh, Jungian psychology. And Kubler-Ross and others have used that technology. I found it very useful in my own development of physics. As a softer science, it's just got as much depth to it as anything I've ever encountered. And so I find it useful as a metaphor in the way I try to approach what I'm trying to understand. Do you think, uh, so from an experimental standpoint and scientific standpoint, I would find it interesting <laughs> if the various versions of tarot line up together in their in what they do is a more maybe esoteric uh, suggestion of results of or whatever they say happens in one month or another. I'm wondering if there is there any underlying corollary scientifically to say, hey, look, independently, these different tarot versions, whether it's mine or Eastern or Greek, if they have similar net outcomes for their yeah i chose the greek pantheon because it was more human than let's say uh egyptian you know which deals with raw and 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 you know gods on a whole other level that are not more and more non-human i tried to use like hera and her you know being an aphrodite and you know the concepts of being uh what do they call that um, type of narcissism? It's uh, interesting. I, I don't know where I'm going with this other than I'm writing a new book to lay down okay. a foundation for your great grandson to write a better one. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I also have this deck. It's, um, it's a psychedelic tarot. And it's based on um, like... Lucky uh, on um like uh, <laughs> yeah, the use of psychedelics and shamanism, all incorporated into a seventy eight seventy two card yeah, card. You deck. see, when you see uh, so it's it's interesting how they fit together. Somebody, yeah, you see the 
red aura. Oh, wow, that guy's got an aura around him. Mm -hmm. Really, what's happening is it's the way the cones and rods work in your eye with an afterglow. But your subconscious is using that hallucination as a way of communicating information it has to the consciousness. And you call that psychic. You know, oh, I can see your aura is da-da-da-da-da. It's not the aura that you're saying. That's just the way of communicating from, con from subconscious to consciousness. Everybody does it differently because everybody's brain is different. You know, that's Richard, why the multiverse has all these different possibilities. What, what, in the last 40, you know, five-ish years, like you said, your perspective, like what you know now is different. How, obviously, you've written now this new book that's just come out. But in the last 45 years, do you think it was a steady, was it more like ticks or was it a steady new realizations? Or what do you think was some of the most more significant uh, paradigm shifts for you in the last 45 years of what you came up with from then to now? The correct answer would be yes. All of the above. Yeah, it's, you know, all of the, it's, I don't mean to be like that, but you're getting, yeah, see, when you smile and laugh, it's because you got what I'm trying to say. Yeah. From, yeah, exactly. Now we're, now we're, that's, where my gift lies is that I'm still a little tiny kid trying to explain something that I'm now in a 78-year-old body as still a four-year-old kid. I see something that, gee, what is that? You know, and I yeah. can't articulate it because I don't have the vocabulary yet. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, it, again, we all, I think the only way to keep looking at things is to be have childlike uh, you have to have a curiosity and it's annoying that we have to say it that way because adults, they go into sleep mode or they just don't. Well, yeah, you, you get programmed into considering how, you know, the typical one I like to use as a metaphor is I would say to you, how many ants are on your property and who's terraforming it more? Right. You know, ding, ding, ding. Like you start to realize there's more going on, but it's not important. Yeah. You have... I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't have believed it. <laughs> the, oh, Gary, did you have another tarot point that I interrupted? If I did, I forgot. All right. Oh, you guys, it's so much fun to watch you play with each other. It's cool. No, no, it's important because what we are all doing is becoming satsangi. We're seekers. We want something more. Yeah. That is what made us God's favorite, is the possibilities from choice. See, Richard, this is a question that's actually coming from Gary, but would you say there's a lot left to learn? I'm sorry? What do would you, mean? you say there's a lot left to learn? Learning, again, is the distinction between learning something and studying it. And I mean, studying it is when you actually integrate. Yeah. It's different. Everybody does Chai Chi differently. They all go down to the ground different. Some grunt. Because <laughs> you know, they're getting old and can't go down as far. 
my teachers, I was really blessed. I had uh, some incredible teachers. When I came to Seattle as a little boy, my father took me down to Chinatown and put me into John Leon's studio to study Hangao. And John had only four students. You know, there was Bruce Lee, Skip Ellsworth, Fred Williams, the big Black Panther guy, and myself. And I did 18 years with him formalizing that. And then Tan Te Chung, Tai Chi master up in Victoria, came down once a week to Dr. Bastier's Naturopathic School of Medicine and taught Tai Chi. And what he did for me is he taught me how to change my perception of time with breath control. And that's when my martial arts become paranormal because I experienced it as Tai Chi. And yet I was doing Hung Gao. I became world champion one year uh, using double sword. With double sword, I extended my chi 32 inches out further, and you could not take me with a bow. Wow. Uh, your pistol, I'd be dead meat, but but with a you know a bow, someone shoot a bow yeah. at me, and they did. They I proved it. You know they shot a, an arrow at me, and I was able to deflect it with my my cheek. And I'm doing that now with my mind's eye. When John Leon goes Whoa! and knocks someone across the room without touching him, and if you watch the fight between Cassius Clay and Sonny Liston. In close inspection, Cassius Clay doesn't even hit, touch Sonny Liston. When Sonny Liston goes back up out of his back and down flat on the ground out cold, Cassius Clay didn't even touch him. That's Chi. Do you think those alignments, I know we talked a bit about Uranus, but do you think that there are, I know the obvious point is that there are different are there alignments that we're just not crediting? You know, we've made a lot of traditions in the last few thousand years. Yeah, that that's what the Carrington dive was all about last winter. They were going in to the heliosphere of the sun. The earth has a cloud of protection around it. So does the sun, and so does our, our, our solar system out by the earth cloud. There's actually this protection thing that... That's why the countdown at, at NASA is so precise. When they go five, four, three, two. Okay, the reason they're doing that precision is they used to have to punch a hole in the ionosphere before liftoff to get that astronaut through it. There's no way he would have been able to do that otherwise. Today, we have HARP, and HARP is up in Alaska and down in Adelaide. 180 degrees from each other, and they can, you know, punch that hole. Now, but the general public doesn't even have a clue. What's Why involved. doesn't that get brought up? So you're saying every single time something goes into space, so every time Elon Musk launches, they have to punch a hole for us for a satellite to get up there? Yeah. Yes, they do. That's why they have those countdowns. The precision of them. It's common knowledge. That's why they did it when I was at Canaveral. 
1971, doing the ESP studies, when Ed Mitchell went around the moon, he will never have babies. Well, it sterilizes you. There's no way we can send an astronaut from Earth to Mars. He'd be dead before arrival. And that's why in 83, the last work I did for the military until recently uh, was creating my own wormhole using sacred geometry. And sacred geometry is different for different genuses like cetacean. Their brain cases are different, which means the resonant cavity oscillation of sacred geometry is different for them than it is for us, Fibonacci, that kind of thing. And you well, start what? meditating on that, and what you do is you set up resonance in your brain, and you can go anywhere you want to. Irrelevant to the Schumann resonance, you can go wherever you want. Schumann's resonance has to do with lightning strikes and the Earth, and uh, it's uh, 7.83. I've written extensively about that Schumann's resonance. Uh, I, I did uh, uh, some studies with Murdoch University, where uh, uh, I actually in, uh, proved that you know Schumann's resonance, for example, on the on the asteroid Titan is four. It's different, and there are different Schumann's resonances for different planets based on the geometry of space and and atmospheric conditions. I um, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to be as good as I can as a physicist, and you know using all the skill sets and studies that I've had with these Nobel Prize winners. But Chan Te Chung, for example, was a grand master in Tai Chi. And it was double yang style. If I went this way, then I went that way, you know. And, and basically, Hung Gao and Hung Gar are dragon where everything is done off a circle because I have a tail like a dragon. I wiggle. And so everything is taken off a circle, molding a ball. And when you can change your perception of time using breath control, now you have martial arts level, paranormal levels with your martial arts. And that is one of the secrets I was given by Tan Te Chung out of Canada. I was very blessed. Yeah. Did he ever share anything else with you that never really got out there that would be of use to us now? You can, when you do push hands, you touch each other hands. You're not really touching each other. You're, 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 it's like a dance, like Argentine tango. It's, you know, you don't even touch each other. You're just kind of dancing. And um, I remember the last lesson I gave the SEAL Team 1, we were in this room together, and I turned the light off, and I said, last man standing. And that was the lesson of misdirection, because they started knocking each other down. And when the last one came looking for me, I was not standing. I was waiting for him on my back, because that's how I learned how to fight in the Philippines. <laughs> on top of me and I had to work my way up 
And uh, when you go upward, there's no defense. You're not defending anything below you. It's usually at you or above you. <laughs> I turned the light back on. I said, okay, guys, what did you guys learn <laughs> right now? And now you want to study that and integrate it into your own way of being. And each of them did so. And why Seal Team 1 became legendary. They were all capable of, what is that called? Uh, doing everybody else's job. Redundancy. Everybody could do everybody else's job, so nobody was more important than another in the team. Did Did you stay in contact with with any of those people? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I lost my arm. This one here, four inches shorter, uh, in Cambodia doing SEAL Team Three. Uh, you know, there's no bone in this. It's actually bionic. I can't pick my nose like I can. You know, <laughs> I don't have an elbow, but. Uh, but it's there's no bone in this in this arm, none. From from my wrist all the way past my elbow, no bone. Wow. My elbow is a wire strap. <laughs> I don't know. I'm all cool. I feel an <laughs> urge to hang clothes yeah. hangers on it on occasion. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just you know it's all part of it, you know. Yeah. Part of being alive. It's alive! It's alive! <laughs> I'm going to really, if I get a chance to open for Saturday Night Live, man, am I going to be creepy or what? <laughs> are you thinking about it? I mean, are I'd you like thinking? to, yeah. John Stewart uh, is going to interview me, and if, if it all goes well, maybe I'll get an opportunity to play with him. And, and, and that's what it's about play. Because, again, Greek always had divine comedy. And divine tragedy, you know, you're, you're either you got to laugh your way out of this whole thing, man. None of it's real. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Well, it's just a way of looking at what's going at going on. And let me tell you, there's way more going on here, my dear Horatio. <laughs> let me say that. Right. I you know I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> Well, have you ever mm, crossed, uh, have, have you ever had an anomaly come up where you're like, every theoretical thought you've had is, you know, have you had an anomaly show up in ideas or otherwise that has been completely contrary to everything you've thought? Every day, <laughs> especially around women. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Uh no, yeah, every day, I, you know, I'm, I'm challenged every day. And it's interesting because most of it is me shooting myself in the foot rather than being pushed to help along into falling into the, the oncoming bus. <laughs> Did you get a license plate on that truck? <laughs> well, Gary... Yeah, I know I've left you kind of speechless, but you are getting what I'm trying to say. And that's really what I'm about is trying to leave footprints for you to take my ideas and move to the next level. Because we are being controlled by something non-human. 
And I don't know what it is uh, from an AI. If time isn't real, what does an artificial intelligent being mean? Silicon-based life form. <laughs> yeah, they've been here a long time. They have limitations, just like when Isaac Asimov um, would, uh, you know, presume iRobot. You know, the idea of trying to create rules of engagement. Yeah, that's the question then is, is what can we do if it were if we're being controlled? How much free will is there? Uh, that's why I don't call it free will. I call it true will. That's why Crowley made a distinction. Free will implies you have full disclosure. You do not have full disclosure. And so you don't have free will. What you do have is true will. Try, yeah. you know, as close as you can with what you know. Does that still create more, do, do we, if we go down with that decision tree, does it help clarify new truths or does it just leave us? Well, uh, you know, it's like when Ducky Mallard said, uh, a, a, uh, an ethical man knows not to cheat on his wife, a moral man won't. The difference between being ethical and moral. Walking your talk. It's not an easy thing to do, and as far as I can tell, there are probably as many different religions as there are human beings. And why you choose one religion over another is for fellowship, because their values are such that you would like to aspire toward. And you, you join a group of people with a similar belief in the event, in the hope of trying to become more like that. That's what's called fellowship. You know, it isn't. And so one of the things I do here locally is every every uh, weekend I go to a different church trying to determine what the fellowship is like and what the lessons are being taught. And everybody, every church is different, whether it be Jewish, Muslim, whatever, Christian. Even in Christianity, there are so many different forms of it. I went, when I was in college, I married a woman that was a Missouri Synod Lutheran, her father who had been a minister. And one of the things I tried to do in college was integrate American Synod with Missouri Synod Lutherans, at least in athletics, where we played baseball together. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, because our, our, our belief systems were approximately the same and in, in play, like, you know, athletics and so on, uh, there was a common ground of belief in terms of what we were trying to do with each other. You know? Yeah. Am I a Christian? I don't know how to respond to that other than to say I taught comparative religion at Harvard for 11 years and have 15 audiobooks on 15 courses, eight-week courses that I did trying to teach comparative religion. Before I could even do that, I had to study Greek and Old Hebrew with Gershom Sholem out of New York City College. I became a Zadi, you know, a holy man, you know, trying to understand the distinctions of the Nagamadi and how it related to the teachings of Christ. I can say 
candidly that the teachings of Christ and the Catholic Church departed direction in the year 1000 when Pope Innocent I declared war on the Cathars. And that's what, you know, the Templars were about and the bloodlines of Christ, because to be king of Jerusalem by canon law since Abraham, you had to have an heir. Before you could be king of Jerusalem, there had to be an heir, an heir to a, you know, a, a, a child. And Jesus of Nazareth had two children with Mary, and they fled to the south of France and became later known as the Cathars. And if you want to follow Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and some of the other more scholarly textbooks in the trail of what is actually going on in religion. And when a woman says, Jesus said it, I believe it, and that's that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <God>. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you have to respect the fact that there are many different roads to God, like yeah. Rome. And so, do you think there's any ones? Uh, obviously, people have their own belief structures, but do you think there's any obscure things pre-dynastic stuff that? rears its head every now and then that you've seen in maybe legends or stories that is something we should maybe even look more well, closely at? Well, I can tell you that magic as practiced by Crowley was not Satanism. You want to see Satanism, uh, go to the Temple of Set and LeBeau and uh, Aquino, you know, in the U.S. Army. That, those that's Satanism. It's a form of Christianity like Al-Qaeda is a form of Muslim. Muslim tradition is way more rigorous than than Christian Christian belief, and Muslims try to walk their talk more. But with that said, there's also more fringe forms of it, like Al Qaeda, like Satanism is a fringe form of Christianity. Is there anything that you would put down on the list of like truly horrible and evil? Evil. Hmm. I don't know, man. Uh, the shadow knows how <laughs> it works in the hearts of man. <laughs> I, uh, I know I don't know. And so I'm very slow to make judgment on another. I judge myself, you betcha. And if I don't like what I'm doing, I try to bring it back into true. That does not mean I know what I'm doing or that I'm right. I'm trying to do the right thing, and I make lots of mistakes like a little boy does, you know, but I don't do it with intent. Do you think that has overall, um, do you think that plays into what you write or how you write? I hope so, uh, but again, remember hope was the last evil in Pandora's box. And what I'm trying to do is actually be as true as I can under the rules of engagement of physics that I, you know, you trust me to try to do the right thing physics-wise. I try to do that with the full understanding that physics is not going to be able to get you there any closer than not. I just try to use that, that, that part of it as a bond between you and me of trying to do this as a moral man, trying to do the right thing. 
I know that I don't know what I'm doing. And so with that said, good luck with that. You know, I, you know, can't get there from here. So I'll try to do it as best I can with the limitations I'm given. I couldn't have said that better myself. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. well, it's a it's a process, you know, and um, why we're here in this physical world, what I would call purgatory. I mean, it's not a very. I mean, no matter what's going on, there's there's the there's the positive and negative part of it. Is there pure evil? Um, I always try to remember that that's an absolute their absolutes are 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 a christian way rather than preference which is an eastern way within eastern way i would say i remember my daughter would say daddy i love this and daddy i hate that and i would say to her i'll bet i could find something you hate even more <laughs> you know the yin within the yang you know rather than working with absolutes i prefer preference or reference to something yeah so yeah is there pure evil i don't know i'm going to presume there is like there's pure good there's pure bad but i don't know that place what i do is i can grok it but that doesn't mean it's real Plus, there could be it could be like the same thing, just like temperature, you know, like extreme cold and extreme heat are both different forms of temperature. That's right, and what is good for you may not be good for me, dietary wise. Mm -hmm. You know, like because our guts are different, our brains are different, have different neurotransmitters, have different bacteria in my gut, and that means, you know, Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean, but together they lick that fatter clean <laughs> <laughs> that is the highest and best use of our time was that analogy in the end <laughs> <laughs> well I, you know metaphor you know yeah. we're limited in our ability to express it and to, to name it that's why in my water uh, chapter on water i have bruce lee because, you know, doing his his martial art thing, because he talked about water as being formless. But when you put it in a container, you know, you name it, like you put it in a glass of water, a glass, now you can do something with it. You can drink it. It's formless until you, shit, you, you put it in a container or you name it. And that's what words do is they containerize concept that's more vague. And that was Gregory Bateson, another teacher I had, when he said, what is your metaphor but to serve your paradox? And so, of course, I have a couple of ox out in my meadow. I think this is the best analogies. We can drink our problems and we can lick the batter. There you go. <laughs> I Don't do that. That's creepy, man. We're, we're, we're on a continuous trajectory to bring this totally flushing down a toilet. <laughs> Isn't it start, fun? You, you know what, Richard? This was your fault. You started with Uranus. I know. I saw him. <laughs> naughty, naughty, naughty boy. 
Not one Klingon joke. I've made not one Klingon joke about circling Uranus. Oh, <laughs> a day to die. That's a good Klingon joke. With yeah, one that one was. day to die. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, was blessed in that I studied with Jerry Pollack back in 1970. When I went into anesthesiology, he was my lead. When I needed a Bridgeport Mill, he'd find one on campus. Actually, my tenure in, uh, in anesthesiology is not as a medical doctor, it's as a physicist. I built the first aortic catheter, which uh, is possibly the single most important measurement in medicine. It measures cardiac output, which is blood velocity with a Doppler transducer with pulse echo to do aortic cross section. Wow. I did that in one year. <laughs> I had to grow the crystals. I had to solder eight 28 megahertz crystals on a two millimeter diameter catheter, and then we started sticking them in dogs. Hmm. Wild. Absolutely wild. <laughs> that was my front door. My back door was where I did all the paranormal studies for the military. This, the, anything really weird come out of the, uh, those experiments? Well, I remember uh, Dr. Black, Dr. Burgess, and Peter Winter were the ones that came up with the concept of microtubule before Hameroff was even under, still in undergraduate school. That's, we were doing the studies for acupuncture for Richard Nixon. And I was like lead physicist for the Pentagon at one point, having to go into his office. <laughs> Once a week, you know, telling him what we knew, what we didn't know, and what I was really concerned about. <laughs> Basically, back then, we knew about aliens, but we were more concerned with what Russia was doing. And Russia back then was more superstitious than they are today. Today, there's solid science. Back then, Kalugina was moving things across the board with her hands, you know, like this, but she had a magnet underneath doing it, but busted her ass real quick. And, you know, Yuri Geller. Geller was a protege of Andrea Fuharich, one of my teachers at SRI. And Geller was the real deal. He could do things, but he couldn't do them on 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 demand. I'm he trying, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get him on, actually. What's that? I've been trying, I'm trying to get him on my show. Tell him, tell him Rick says he should do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell him. I, I have because to reach, I, actually, I, I have caught to reach him, out to I caught him cheating. Follow up I caught him, him cheating, but the thing was, it, it, it fractured. You know, he was running around with a bunch of wealthy women. Oh, break my watch! You know, and, um, he couldn't just do it, but he was, in fact, demonstrating paranormal phenomena and that's why Puharich, who wrote the book Beyond Telepathy, mm -hmm. uh, was incredible. And the fact is, it took all of that research and it made it unvalid because of that one moment of cheating. Yeah. The thing is... But I was watching some of the stuff that he did, though, with, like, Russell Targ. He, I mean, it, he, he was do, they were proving what he was doing, Targ was. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, we all of us can do this. That's the whole yeah. part of it that's so amazing. It's just we're programmed from 
the moment we come out of the crib to disregard that as not real. And all of it is potentially real. It's how you use your mind as a tool. And so that is where it's really at. And Pew Harch and uh, oh, uh, what was his name? Oh, I've got him out there. Uh, I forget now some of the other people that were working there. They were brilliant scientists trying to understand what's really going on. And today, we still don't really know. I'm trying to write new models with Russians now on the multiverse using a virtual form of Kaufman's knot theory. And that will probably open doors I cannot even at this moment imagine. Do you know, you know do you know Dave Morehouse? Who? Dave Morehouse? I, no, I don't know him. I know of his work. Because yeah, he, he taught me how to do remote viewing. It's pretty cool. Yeah. There's a lot of us out there that are basically wanting something more than the physical world. You know, there's something more going on here. What and how we articulate that is arbitrary. Once we do, more doors open for man. And at some point, we're going to have a breakaway where we escape from the Petri dish and become a COVID virus for the aliens, only as in stasis, as <laughs> <laughs> a metaphor. Yeah. Awesome. I think we've oh. covered this, though. Maybe we're just giant uh, traveling um, cars for our three and a half pounds of gut bacteria to talk to each other. Well, there's there's actually there's life forms above us in the food chain. I have watched orca chase dolphin for food. And when you talk about lesser entities like a whale singing songs like the Hopi did to their children as a dialogue. You know, they have these songs of whale sing out at Friday Harbor. And I, I'm telling you, they're unique songs. And what they are is the history and what make their tribe unique from a different set of whale. And we have four cetaceans that actually have bigger brain cases than men, crunching power, if you will. Mm. There's the, the orca, the dolphin, the pilot whale, and the manatee. How about All four of those have different shapes in terms of their brains. And that's why I'm going to guess their sacred geometry and their ability to do something, like create a wormhole, is going to be using a different sacred geometry than that from men. And man is unique with the way we have our two brains and our so on. And so I'm going to guess that the geometry that man uses is different than that of cetacean. I don't know that, but I'm going to guess that. Interesting. So I have to wrap this up because I have another guest coming up. Um, but before we wrap it up, Richard, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Oh, at my website. My unique website is richardallenmiller.com. A-L-A-N. richardallenmiller.com. So it's back up and now? I'm sorry? It's back up. I think last time I talked to you, it was down. 
the website. The website's back up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've got it at Squarespace. I have backups and so on. Yes. I originally used to have it on. on I wished I was still on. on uh, but I'm I, I'm at Squarespace right now, a Google project. Yeah. And uh, at RichardAllenMiller.com and my bookstore, it has all kinds of different things for sale, including antiques that I'm now downsizing. You do, know, you have, do you have T-shirts? Yeah. I'm sorry. Do you have T-shirts? T-shirts? Yes, I do. Yeah. I, got, I got to get a Richard I, Allen I have T-shirt. <laughs> Yeah, uh, according to my calculation, is one, and uh, you know, I am the walrus is another one. I am the walrus. <laughs> I am cuckoo kitchen. Yeah, that's uh, Helen Downs did that one for me. Yeah, I uh, just messing with that, trying to make you smile just for a moment, because humor is what gets us out of this creepy place we're going to all enjoy. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, so I will put the link to your website in the notes of this episode. And uh, it was a pleasure having you back on. Thank oh, always a pleasure. I'm, I'm always good. That, you know, when the new book on tarot comes out, I'm going to start a whole new series on pathworking as the magician that didn't blow himself up. Jack Parsons uh, started Jet Propulsion Laboratory and JPL and had that troll, L. Ron Hubbard, hanging around him where they were trying to make science a religion. And it's why we have Two Brains, which is Chapter 7 in the Non-Local Mind, titled Time Travel and the True Nature of Cavitation. You know, science and religion, uh, right and left brain with Malcoma, <laughs> Malcolm, in the middle. <laughs> did, did you know Israel Rigardi? I'm sorry, yes, I knew uh, of Francis Rigardi. I've studied... A lot of his work, Crater Akkad, my teachers with Phyllis Seckler, Mildred okay. Burlingame, yes. and Helen Parsons Smith. So Phyllis Seckler also um, taught Lon Milo Duquette, right? Well, Duquette is just one of her students. I'm yeah. older. Uh, she started with me, and we started the College of Thelema. If you go in the continuum, you'll find a lot of my articles in Madrid that I've written. Or in the continuum, the university. Oh, I didn't know that. I was offered caliphate when Bre when Grady McMurtry died. Grady's, yes. They offered caliphate to me, grade 10, and mm -hmm. I turned it down. I, uh, I did not want to run a magic order that was mostly inhabited by a bunch of young kids trying to rationalize their excuse for drugs. What I'm going to do is write how you do it without drugs. Awesome. Same high. That is awesome. I can produce that. That's awesome. Electromagic, the book Electromagic. <laughs> and I did that in 1979. Cool. Awesome. All right. So, All right. Um, yeah, I went off track there. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't even smoke pot anymore. I don't need to, man. Wow. Yeah, I don't throw anything, any right throw anything anymore either. After There's an article. <laughs> There's an article in High Times on May, interview May. Uh, in 1992, February issue, 1992, growing pot on the moon. <laughs> Tom Lytle. It was psychedelic monographs and essays. I knew Trout and Shulgin and some of the others at that time because all of my studies have dealt with inner space. Mm -hmm. uh, 
the vastness of interstates when I was up at Deception Pass in 1964 looking down at her out of Hurricane Ridge and all the colors peeling back and Tim leaned over and he said wouldn't it be neat to jump <laughs> and that was when I discovered all the suckslers and all the doors slamming sled in my mind going oh no I don't want to think this I don't want to go there I bang 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 that's when I discovered how vast inner space was compared to outer space. Well, awesome. Gary, you said you had another show, and yep. I'm going to talk to Richard for another hour if we keep this up. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, opening doors. That's what I want to do is leave some footprints now. I, I need to find some help in forming a foundation for my library. One of the four bedrooms was my library, which had more than 400 boxes, 80 pounds each of books. Where wow. are we going to put those? They're in storage right now. And what I would like to do is have all of my writings support a foundation for a library for continued study in altered states. That'd be cool. Yeah, it would be awesome. Yeah. So I, I have books going back to the 14th century. I have first edition on the Yazidi, you know, the, the, uh, I've got Tibetan Book of the Dead, mm -hmm. all of these different things going way wow. back from my own studies that I don't want to just sell. What I'd like to do is keep everything intact, like uh, like Manager Foundation did or, or Edgar Casey, where these books are used as a trust a library or adjunct to a library. And I'm going to need some help figuring out how to do that. So maybe um, somebody's got some ideas. You know, we're always willing to help or try to find the right people to help you. Yeah. I need yeah. some young kids that want to take this on and move it forward, keeping everything intact. Because if I don't, uh, there'll be a feeding frenzy out there with copyrights and who printed what. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Amazon's already doing that I illegally. Know. You know that the the week I was going to hire a detective in Texas to find out where that mass market on the modern alchemist out of Texas was what they're really doing, they moved to Turkey, and apparently that's okay with Amazon. That's, I'm sorry, that sucks. Yeah, well, I would be able to have my own home rather than living in this little shit shack. That's just one part of, but I can't go chasing windmills. What I want yeah. to do is finish writing my manuscripts, leaving them as a footprint. And since I don't have any family to give them to any, anymore, what do I do with it? Why am I doing, why am I writing these things? It's certainly not going to benefit me. No. Yeah. So I need some help. Foundation of some kind. You know, Mike Mandeville, a guy I grew up with, ran the Edgar Casey Foundation in Topeka, uh, in uh, Tucson. And he, he's too old to do it, but I need to find somebody that would like to continue using my writing to support a foundation or a library where people can go and find some serious work. I, you have no idea how deep my library goes. I have huh, over 400 boxes of books like you have right there. That right there is less than half a box. 
Oh gosh, I have boxes of books too. This is the stuff that's kind of like more my current wheelhouse just for funsies. But yeah, I agree with you. There's, you get, you don't I don't want to throw them away or just give them away. What do I do with it? Well, I don't know. At my age, I'm 78. You want to digitize the library, maybe? Well, we should talk offline. I, I should, we should catch up. I'm, I'm good to go. I'm ready to go, and I don't have a lot of time because what I'm trying to do is write books now. I have 40 new manuscripts I'd like to get done before I turn into worm food. I have some. Well, I have uh, patrons willing to help me pay. You know, make that happen. But if I don't sell books, that's my only source of income. Yeah. So feel free to support me by buying my books. I will autograph everything, and I hope to give you more than you spend in terms of value. Awesome. Always have. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Richard. And, my my uh, pleasure. We'll wrap yeah. this up, and I'll definitely put the links to your website in the notes of this episode so my listeners can buy your books and help support you. And, of course, you always have the support of me and Jared as well. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks, it's been man. a pleasure. I guess it's time for me to say au revoir. Good Abend. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says...